Good morning, everyone. So good to see you today. What a blessing we have in our Savior. He is so good to us. We'll be in Job 33 as you're turning there. Um, just a few announcements. Everything basically is starting off this week where we have the women's Bible study starts up on Wednesday. Uh, the Friday night Bible study will begin um, at 7.30. And uh, so that's solid in the Word Bible study going through the book of John. Next Sunday, we're going to have communion. And then the Sunday week, we'll have a quarterly meeting. So just an inf informational meeting to catch up on the goings-on at the fellowship. So you're all invited. It's great to, uh, to be able to gather and to worship the Lord together. And man, it's so good that God is good. We can just rejoice in his, his sovereignty and his greatness. And we can just entrust ourselves and our future to him forever because he's created us, he loves us, and man. I, I can't imagine if God wasn't good. He wouldn't be God. Thank you. Thanks for coming. Let's come to the Lord now in prayer. Thank you, Lord, for your grace, for your goodness, for being our awesome father, the one who calls us friend. And we thank you that you are glorious and awesome and in majesty and that you reign and rule over all as king of kings and lord of lords. That your aim is not to destroy, but to save, to deliver and redeem. And thank you that we can rejoice in your promises and in your word that's true. And Lord, we love you and we thank you for this opportunity to draw near to you now through the reading of your word and pray that it would find good ground prepared in our hearts to receive and to walk in the things that you teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. Physical discomfort, it's something that's part of everyday life, but it can be a useful asset. That racking cough or the sore throat, you're like, oh, I think I'm getting sick. It, it alerts you that something's wrong inside the body that you need to go to the doctor. That smell of smoke, that's awful. That, that, have you been in a, a room where like when the, the smoke detectors went off in here and the alarm is blaring and it's just hitting that frequency that's making your head like vibrate inside and it hurts and you just want to leave. Well, that is safety. That is for your benefit so that if there was a fire, you would look to investigate what's on fire or it's time to evacuate so that you could be saved. Did you know that the, the gas used in your house for your ranges, that is odorless naturally. It has something in it called ethyl mercaptan, which smells like rotten eggs. And it's a smell that they put in it so that you can distinguish it as a unique odor to be careful. Like when we bought our house and we moved in and over by the gas main, it was like, what's that distinct smell? We know what smell that is. It's gas. This must have a leak. So we called out a technician. He, he said, yep, you got a leak. And so... If it had been odorless, we would not have known there was a leak and we'd have been wasting gas and hadn't an explosive, a risk of explosion and death. So most people don't know the name of the chemical that they're smelling, but what you're smelling is safety. You're smelling it for, it's for your protection. And it's a, it's a terrible smell, but it has a purpose. And most people don't know what God's doing when things are bad, when evil things happen. But thankfully, he is good, and he has a purpose that is good in the end. 
So if this is the first message you've heard of Job, know that you're coming in the middle of a conversation that's been going on for a while, of conflict between Job and his friends, uh, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. They had talked themselves out, and then young Elihu chimes in, and he had been a bit angry listening to their conversation because these are the elders, these are the wise men that should have the answers. And his friends accused Job of sin without evidence, and they misjudged him, and they were silent. They had no more, nothing more to say. They didn't convince Job at all by their arguments because he continued to justify himself. And he was angry that he, in justifying himself, he was saying that God had made a mistake. And so he begins to explain why this is really a problem. And Elihu would present his case that God allows suffering to save, to help, to teach, not just destroy. And that's something that he started speaking about last week. That God can communicate in a dream, in a vision. He can also communicate by pain and sleepless nights to save souls, to keep people from harm, to turn people from the wickedness of their ways, and that God's ways are higher than ours. And what Job suffered, though painful, it had redemptive purposes because God is sovereign and good. That's kind of summing up what Elihu has said to this point. So we continue in Job 33, starting in verse 23. If there is a messenger for him, a mediator, one among a thousand to show man his uprightness, then he is gracious to him and says, deliver him from going down to the pit. I have found a ransom. His flesh shall be young like a child's. He shall return to the days of his youth. He shall pray to God and he will delight in him. He shall see his face with joy for he restores to man his righteousness. Then he looks at man and says, I have sinned and perverted what was right and it did not profit me. He will redeem his soul from going down to the pit and his life shall see the light. Elihu's approach to Job was one to speak on his behalf before God. He was like a solicitor before the judge. He's like, I want to speak in your defense. I want, to, I want to be on your team, Job. I'm not against you. I'm not your enemy. I have wisdom to share with you. And he mentions here the benefit of a mediator and how, how important that is to have a mediator, to have someone to speak on your behalf. And Moses was someone in the Old Testament who was that sort of person. He was chosen by God who had connection with God, God spoke to him and he, he taught the people God's ways. And he also prayed for the people. Remember how he interceded when they had sinned. And he said, Lord, you know, destroy me, not them. Remember what you promised them. And he, he stood in the gap for them. Samuel and David, they also prayed for the people. Samuel prayed when the Philistines were coming upon them and they were without weapons and very defenseless. And God heard his prayer and saved them. David, when that plague came through, he, he was someone who talked with God. And he, it's like a mediator has contact with both sides, the people and with God, and speaks on behalf of the people to God. This was really a priestly and prophetic role that Elihu desired. And since Jesus has come, we know he is our mediator. He is our intercessor before the Father. He's shown us the Father because he is God himself. And he has gone to the Father, and he is an intercessor on our behalf. He's provided the wisdom, the righteousness, and redemption for us. He, he has given the ransom, right, with his own blood, so that we could be redeemed. 
Elihu explains in verse 27 how someone having received correction is able to see how they've erred so they can repent and confess it before others. When you're brought into agreement with God and you realize like, whoa, the way I've been acting, the things I've been saying are wrong. Then you're moved to confess them and saying there was nothing good in what I did. It was all wrong and I confess it and I want to forsake it. We've been redeemed from darkness. We walk in the light and we're to walk as children of the light. We expect that those who do not know God are his ways to sin and know that Christians sin too. We make mistakes. We, we go beyond what we should say with our mouths. We, we think things that are wrong. We have wrong ideas about the world and even about God. And as followers of Jesus, when we're confronted with our sin, we are to confess it. We are to forsake it, to repent, to forgive as Jesus has forgiven us. And God is so gracious and powerful that he can redeem even our mistakes for good. And that is glorious thing about God. Continuing in Job 33, verse 29. Behold, God works all these things twice. In fact, three times with a man to bring back his soul from the pit that he may be enlightened with the light of life. Give ear, Job. Listen to me. Hold your peace and I will speak. If you have anything to say, answer me. Speak for I desire to justify you. If not, listen to me, hold your peace, and I will teach you wisdom. He urged Job in his pains that God was at work in his situation. He wasn't able to see it. He was blinded by pain and grief and even his pride, as we'll see. And that God was at work with a purpose to save him, to enlighten him with the light of life. It's common in struggles to despair of life. You're like, why do I even exist? Right? You question the purpose for living. And Job had done this early on in his discussion. That's kind of how he began. He's like, I wish I wasn't even alive anymore with how much I've suffered. You know, I wish my life could just be taken away so I could be rid of this pain that I'm feeling that I can't escape. And he, in his pain, he realized that some really tragic permanent things had happened. Like healing for him seemed impossible. He's like, if so, what, even if I recover from this illness, what will it bring back my children? Will it remove the shame that I've suffered of these accusations that my friends brought to me without knowledge? The tragic turn of events, it revealed that his wife gave him like, so he's struggling and his wife says, curse God and die. That was what she said to him. And he's living with that. He's thinking about that and going, man, that's a, that's a bummer. That's a problem. That's sinful. That's foolish. And then his friends come to him and instead of comforting him and being kind towards him and compassionate, they, they just pointed out flaws in him without evidence of any wrongdoing. Elihu has this healthy perspective that trials should be seen in the light of eternity. That's one thing he's bringing here. Like that helps us have perspective with the thing that we're suffering. Like in the light of eternity, when, when this whole life is wrapped up, is this really that huge? Um, that God has a redemptive purpose that he can redeem this because he's God. And he has a plan even when people have uh, ideas for evil, like with Joseph, where he says, what you intended for evil, God meant for good. God would reverse their plans. Perhaps this soul 
searching, heart-rending struggle that Job was going through would be the means of saving his own soul. Perhaps it would be a way to turn him or others from sin that would lead to death. Perhaps this trial would reveal his need to repent for sin. And he would come to God now in a way that he never had before. What seemed like punishment was really God protecting him. God was doing something to save him and help him rather than to hurt him or just to punish him. This term light of life, it's neat because we see Jesus speak of it in John 8, 12. It says, then Jesus spoke to them again saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Really him, that we could have God leading us the light of the world, that we'd have the light of life, an eternal life, an abundant life, a life that's free from confusion and sorrow um, without hope. We sorrow, yes, we feel pain, but we have a hope in Jesus that we can cling to because he holds us. The most restorative work ever done involved pain on a cross with purpose. That's the greatest act of restoring and saving and delivering and redeeming that's ever been done. And it was born through pain. And it's good for us to remember that when we're hurting and we cannot see the purpose, no, God can see what we cannot see. And he knows what we cannot know. And we can trust him because he's trustworthy. And Elihu, he's, he's personable. He's addressing Job by name again. His friends never said his name, but he does. And he says, he gives him an opportunity to speak. So he's like, if you have anything to say, Job, please say it. But I've got more to say. And I can instruct you in the ways of wisdom. And I want to acquit you. I'm an ally. I'm not an enemy. He continues in chapter 34. Elihu further answered and said, hear my words, you wise men. Give ear to me, you who have knowledge. For the ear tests words as the palate tastes food. Let us choose justice for ourselves. Let us know among ourselves what is good. For Job has said, I am righteous, but God has taken away my justice. Should I lie concerning my right? My wound is incurable, though I am without transgression. What man is like Job who drinks scorn like water, who goes in company with the workers of iniquity and walks with wicked men? For he has said, it profits a man nothing that he should delight in God. Elihu addresses Job and his friends. And he's not being cynical here. He's like, come on, you wise men. He's, he is appealing to their good judgment. He's saying, you're wise men. Listen to this. Consider this. He says, the ear tests words as the palate tastes food. And it's a good illustration because not everyone's tastes are the same, right? One person uh, can eat food and say, oh, this is really spicy. And I eat it and I'm like, this is bland. I mean, I think I've killed off half the taste buds in my mouth from eating spicy food. But a basic approach I have in tasting or eating is that before I season food, I taste it first. That's kind of to, uh, to not assume that the dish that's put before me needs anything. But as I eat it, and maybe I'm the one who put it together or someone else baked it, or then I'm like, all right, you know what would be really good to even make this meal better? Add some garlic salt or something. And you're like, that's perfect. Or some hot sauce, something that's spicy maybe. But... While we have differences of opinion, there are some things we can't agree on. There is some objective reality there with taste. Like if this food or dish, if it's savory, sweet, or spicy. If, if you said the ocean was sweet, 
I would wonder, what ocean are you drinking? Because the ocean is not sweet. We know that it ha- it's full of high saline content. It has very salty. It's not to be drunk. It's not different for you because your, your tastes are different. Well, to me, it's pretty sweet. It's salty. It's the ocean. It's like going to the Dead Sea and saying, oh, it's spicy. It's not salty. There was one time I uh, offended someone. I, the guy brought donuts into work. We were apprentices, and the rule was, you know, like, all right, bring in donuts on Saturday. And so he brought in donuts one day, and I took a bite of a jam-filled donut. I'm like, ooh, what has happened here? There was something tangy and bitey and, like, off about this donut. And I'm like, you know, don't go back to that donut place again. He's like, what do you mean? What are you saying about my donuts? I'm like, well, taste one. So he's a bit huffy, and he tasted one. He's like, oh, boy, something has gone off. I know these were day-old donuts, and it came out. You know, that's a thing. You can buy day-old donuts in the States and get a bit of a discount, but these weren't day-old donuts. They may have been week-old donuts that have been sitting in the, you know, I don't know, but I don't go back to that place. He agreed with me after tasting it, like, it is off. You were justified in critiquing this donut. So in the same way, Elihu is saying, listen to what I'm saying. Taste it for yourselves. Weigh it. I'm willing to be tested. Listen to it and see if it's just, if I'm saying what's true. If his words were rotten with lies or poisoned with pride, they would be correct to reject them and to correct him. Now, it's important to clarify this exhortation of Elihu to choose justice for ourselves. I think the term justice today, it's, it's typically used in a subjective manner, uh, based upon fairness, what we perceive to be fair. Uh, The term social justice, I looked up a definition. It said, justice in terms of the distribution of wealth, opportunities, and privileges within a society. And what's inferred in this kind of justice is this pursuit of equality of people by comparison. This is not the kind of justice that Elihu is talking about here. He says, let us choose justice for ourselves. Like, oh, I, I like that. It's got the flavor that I like. It's an objective thing. Because as God's wisdom differs from the wisdom of this world, his justice differs from the world's idea of what justice is. Justice from a biblical perspective is when people embrace God's judgments and do them. There's an equality with which God says, this is right. These are my ways. And you walk in those ways. That is justice. That is biblical justice. This is equality and equity in God's eyes is to know God and to do what he says in obedience to him. That is justice. Uh, The first mention of justice helps us to really uh, clarify this in in Genesis 18, 19. The first mention where he speaks to justice is with Abraham, where God said, for I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. So doing justly is knowing God, walking in his ways, doing what he says is righteous to keep his judgments. We get a a twisted view of judgment or justice with King David and his son Absalom. In 2 Samuel 8, 15, it says that King David administered judgment and justice to all his people. So this was God's view of his rule. His son Absalom, however, did not agree. 
When people would come to the gate and he was standing in the gate, a place of judgment, and he would hug the people who came and enter in a conversation. Well, why are you coming to, uh, to Jerusalem today? And they would say, oh, I've got an issue. And this is what he said in 2 Samuel 15, 4. Moreover, Absalom would say, oh, that I were made judge in the land and everyone who had any suit or cause would come to me. Then I would give him justice. Hmm. David's being just to everyone. And yet Absalom's going to give him justice. This is an unjust man because what would he do? He would usurp his father's throne. He would sleep with his concubines. He would try to kill him. That is not justice, what he was going to give. Elihu desired that all submit to God's ways in consideration of his justice. And he's shown us what's good to do justly, to love mercy and to walk humbly with our God. Now, Elihu's main concern about Job justifying himself and claiming to be righteous without sin was to speak against God and the revelation of him. Because if God had truly removed his justice, if what had happened to him was unjust, then that would be unjust and then God would be unjust. So by extension, he's saying you are charging God with wrong and God is just. He is righteous. He is unquestionably good and righteous in everything he does. And so you are slandering him by claiming your justice has been taken away. In verses seven and eight, Elihu said that Job aligned himself with people who hate God, who stand in judgment of God and criticize him. He's saying, you're claiming to be righteous, Job, but at the same time, you have an issue with God and you're saying he's unjust. Like books or articles proofed by editors, he bid Job and his friends, he's like, follow the train of my logic, trace it through and make sure that it's sound. Maybe I've erred, but this is, this is my argument. And I find this really refreshing that Elihu has these very strong convictions. I mean, he's emotional about it, yet he's willing to have his claims put to the test and asking these elders, this is what I'm hearing. Is this what you're saying? Because if you are, that's a problem. He wanted to exalt the justice of God and the righteousness of God rather than just trying to uh, get Job off the hook. Continuing in verse 10. Therefore, listen to me, you men of understanding. Far be it from God to do wickedness and from the Almighty to commit iniquity. For he repays man according to his work and makes man to find a reward according to his way. Surely God will never do wickedly nor will the almighty pervert justice who gave him charge over the earth or who appointed him over the whole world. If he should set his heart on it, if he should gather to himself, his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together and man would return to dust. He now launches out to defend and exalt the righteousness of God that the almighty cannot transgress or sin. And one quality that I have found, because uh, you find different interpretations of his tone and his demeanor and his intent as you read through some commentaries and what people have written. One quality that he's criticized for, uh, likely a product of pro- possibly his youth or his anger, is that he overstated Job's position and thus operated from a faulty premise. But it was just to make a point. Um, God did have strong words of rebuke against Job's three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. But in the last chapter, he had nothing uh, negative to say about Elihu at all. 
So I think we have to take that into account and season his words with faith in God and grace to make them a bit more palatable. When he sounds a bit harsh, when he sounds rude, know that it's coming from a heart that truly does desire um, to be heard and to exalt God and to be on Job's side as a friend, not trying to condemn as his friends had. Elihu knew the almighty God. He knew he is righteous. He will never do wrong. The judge of all the earth will not pervert justice. He will not excuse sin or show partiality to anyone. God's eternal. He's pure, perfect, unchanging. God, by his wisdom, he hung the earth on nothing. He give, gives light and light to all creatures. He put in man a living soul. And if God at any moment should say, all right, I'm done with these people we would just be left to rot. Like we are sustained by the grace of God and his goodness. We can apply that concept. James 2.10 puts forth that if we break one law, we're guilty of breaking the whole law. We can apply that to the character of God. If God perverted justice once, he could not be a righteous judge. He would be altogether corrupt, but he is a righteous judge. He's not corrupt in any way. He is righteous and holy, and he's justified to repay us according to our works or to reward us according to his grace by doing what pleases him. And he previously had reminded his hearers, like, God's not accountable to anyone. There's no checks or balances with him. He doesn't have to weigh one outcome against another. Like, well, if I did this, then this could happen. Or if I did that, then that would happen. Mm, That's not good. Whatever shall I do? That is not God. God knows what he's done and what he will accomplish through everything that we just don't understand. He doesn't like people need to consider what's good, right, or equitable because in himself, he is all those things. He is righteous. He didn't need to create mankind in his image. In a moment, he could annihilate us all. And the fact that he gives us opportunity to repent and he sent a savior to suffer and die for us demonstrates his love that he actually loves us. God doesn't hold a position in eternal glory because men approve of his laws or judgments. We live and have been put on this earth to walk in them. Will we choose him? Will we surrender and submit to him? Job 34 verse 16. If you have understanding, hear this, listen to the sound of my words. Should one who hates justice govern? Would you condemn him who is most just? Is it fitting to say to a king, you are worthless, and to nobles, you are wicked? Yet he is not partial to princes, nor nor does he regard the rich more than the poor, for they are all the work of his hands. In a moment they die in the middle of the night. The people are shaken and pass away. The mighty are taken away without a hand. He appeals to the understanding of his hearers, like How could God establish the laws that we see in nature? How could he govern the world if he wasn't just? How could he do that? How could he be the judge if he's not just and righteous in himself? You know, when the kings of Israel were first crowned, the first order of business under law was to write a copy of the law, the law of Moses, so that they would learn it and they would uphold it in their judgments. That they would be just and equitable as governing. So who is man to condemn God who is the immaculate standard of righteousness? God is just. So who is man to condemn him? 
We could only justify doing so because of our ignorance or our pride. And it was unfitting, Elihu said, for a subject to call his king worthless. Now, we can do this, can't we? If we don't agree with the government or their policies, we're like, oh, the guy he doesn't get anything done or it's all corrupt. And we just make these general statements or you hear these statements. It was wrong, Elihu said, to condemn nobles who had positions according to God's sovereign choosing. In the New Testament, Paul says this in Romans 13, that all governors and authority are his ministers, that there is no power but of God. And I think in our constitutional monarchy and representative democracy, we can overlook the hand that God has in the appointment of rulers because he is sovereign. He turns the hearts of men and nations as he wills. And he has reasons for it that we can't see. And we may throw up our hands and just say, oh, it's hopeless. Well, yeah, looking to those things, it is hopeless. It always has been. But God, there is hope in him because he's good, because he's gracious. Whether they fulfill their responsibility before God or not in being just and righteous, that is on them. They will answer to God for that. But will I submit to them as unto God's rule? Because I honor and glorify him. Whether we agree or not with the policies of a party, our conscience, it ought to agree with God who rules wisely without partiality or favoritism. Now, at any given time, it seems that there are no shortage of scandals involving judges or public servants or even royalty. The Bible has many of these as well. It's not a recent uh, phenomenon that uh, many kings and queens and priests and princes who sinned in ways they did not measure up to God's righteousness or his justice, it says they took bribes, they perverted justice. Samuel, he's a prophet of God, but his sons, what did they do? They perverted justice, they took bribes. Eli's sons, he's the high priest. Hophni and Phinehas, they were legendary in their licentiousness and sin. They, would an- they will answer for that, and God allowed their sin to come back on their own head. David, right? He covered up his affair with Bathsheba by having Uriah killed on the battle, battlefield. Jezebel, she arranged Naboth's murder because Ahab wanted his vineyard for himself. He had asked Naboth for his vineyard and said, I'll buy your vineyard, sell it to me. And he said, uh, should I give you my inheritance from the Lord? Never. So he goes home sulking and Jezebel takes his signet ring and writes a few letters and gets the man stoned. These things were not hidden before God's eyes. He saw them happening. He saw it all unfolding. And he brought the consequences of sin upon them. Consider this. What can man offer God to sway him from his righteousness and justice? Is there any greed that you can appeal to in God? Is there any longing for power or authority? (laughs) No, he has it all. There's nothing we could offer him to sway him at all. The rich, the poor, the royal, the commoner, the strong and the weak, the judge and jury, they're all the work of his hand. He who made them will one day take them away and judge them according to their works. We read of that in scripture. Continuing in verse 21. For his eyes are on the ways of man and he sees all his steps. There is no darkness nor shadow of death where the workers of iniquity may hide themselves. For he need not further consider a man that he should go before God in judgment. 
He breaks in pieces mighty men without inquiry and sets others in their place. Therefore, he knows their works. He overthrows them in the night and they are crushed. He strikes them as, a wick, as wicked men in the open sight of others because they turn back from him and would not consider any of his ways so that they cause the cry of the poor to come to him. For he hears the cry of the afflicted. When he gives quietness, who then can make trouble? And when he hides his face, who then can see him, whether it is against a nation or a man alone, that the hypocrite should not reign, lest the people be ensnared. Elihu, he exalted the righteousness of God. Now he exalts the omnipotence of God and his omniscience, that he, he has knowledge over everything. He knows it all. He doesn't need to make an inquiry, right? If we hear about something, we might inquire, you know, do a, a search online or talk to the parties involved to find the, the details. Well, God doesn't need to do that on anyone because he knows everything, right? He has total knowledge of the situation. God knows what he will do, what he will accomplish in doing so. David in Psalm 139, he said, there's no place I can hide from God's presence. He knows everything. He's everywhere. God saw Eve's interaction with Satan in the garden. He saw when she and Adam ate of the fruit. He saw them hurriedly gathering up fig leaves and sewing them together. And he knew where they were as he walked through the garden. And he called out, hey, Adam, where are you? Have you eaten from that tree that I asked you not to eat of? I commanded you not to eat from? I mean, trying to hide from God who knows everything is like a kid sitting in plain sight, just holding his hands over his face, thinking that he can't be seen because he can't see. <laughs> God sees. But there you are. Man covers his tracks. He doesn't want God to see where he, he doesn't want anyone to see where he's been, but he knows where you are and where you're heading. He knows the end. He knows everything. He doesn't have to make an inquiry like we do. God has the power to overthrow an empire in a night, like with Babylon, right? In a night, that empire fell and the Medes and Persians came. He crushed the head of Satan. He caused a man to shoot a bow at random and hit Ahab through the chink in his armor who was in disguise on the battlefield. I mean, shooting at random, it's like, oh no, this is going to be like, I just want to get rid of these. I have to get rid of these arrows and then I can go home. So I'm just going to shoot some arrows. And one of them just happens, just happens to hit Ahab in the side. And he was wounded and died. Jezebel, she was thrown headlong to the ground despite her allurements because of her sin. They were all found out with God, with, by God, without inquiry, because he knew what they were up to. He knew there was no time for deliberation. There was no pause. He knew what had happened. And there was no appeal possible because God is just. We have all those things built into our systems because we don't know everything. And people can be deceitful and they don't tell you all the facts. And you don't know all the facts even when you think you know all the facts. And so there are, it's wise to have appeals and opportunities to present your case. But before God, no presentation is required because he already knows. He knows the sinful motives of the heart and he hears the cries of the victims in real time. God knows. And he is a judge of all the earth. No one can hide from him. He doesn't investigate. Everything is seen and known by him. He's only righteous. He's also just and merciful. 
in his judgments. If he crushes someone, it was judgment or chastening well applied. But let's be cautious. Laura and I had a really good conversation last week in saying that when we do struggle, when we are hurting, it is perfectly fine to question why. God is able to receive these questions and he longs to hear our voice. When we pour our hearts to him and we are hurting, he hears us and he receives. Let's be cautious in saying that tragedies and troubles God allows are good in themselves without his redemptive power and purposes. Remember, it was Satan that wanted to destroy Job, not God. God allowed this to come upon him because he had a purpose in mind. What happened to him was evil, a great evil. God described Job as a righteous man, blameless and upright in every way. It said he feared God and shunned evil. So he didn't do what was evil in God's sight. So it's clear then that actions can be objectively evil. If God says, you see my servant, he doesn't, he shuns evil. We can know that evil exists, right? When struck with that incurable illness, Job said, shall we indeed accept good from God? And shall we not accept evil? The word is translated ad, uh, adversity in the new King James, but it's the same word in the Hebrew raw. When a friends heard of the evil or the adversity that came upon Job, they came to visit him. And this word evil, it's a bit tricky for us because we don't often use it. And it's really frowned upon to say anything is evil today because people don't appreciate people making moral or objective statements from a position of authority. They don't want to hear that because they don't agree. They have different tastes, right? According to the dictionary that I was reading, the Webster's 1828 dictionary, it says an action can be evil because it's rebellion and disobedience from God. And evil can also be defined as the effect that it has on someone. So I think we had a great illustration of this that happened with our Australian of the year, Dylan Alcott, quad wheelchair tennis champion. He said in his youth, he hated being born with a disability. To him, it was a great evil. He despaired of life because of how it made him feel. But what he once viewed as a great evil and made him despair of life, his views have shifted until he can say, I love my disability. And that's a very hard thing to, for some to agree with or to come to that place of loving something that was so hurtful at a point in their life. They are still struggling perhaps with a disability that they have not grown to love. They still see it as only evil. Job was a God fearing man. He was unable to see any good in his suffering or his trouble. Now, while God did not and cannot do evil, he allowed Job to suffer evil in that the trial caused pain, loss, calamity, and injury. So that is called evil. Things that hurt you in those ways. Now suffering, it's not always a result of our sin or a punishment. When, when we are suffering, we think, what did I do to deserve this? But it, that may not be the question that we should be asking. Evils that confront us, they are not good in themselves. They are evil. It was an evil thing that happened. But God is good 
and he's able to redeem even evil for good. The thing that hurts, the thing that was wrong, the thing that could never be put right, God can redeem it because he is glory. He's that powerful. He's that awesome. He alone has the power to redeem natural, moral, or civil evils to accomplish his good purposes. And that shouldn't prompt us to minimize evils and say, well, good will come from that in the end. Or to discount someone's pain that they've gone through or the difficulty they've endured. Realize, like a lot of times we can try to look on the good side of a problem instead of looking to God. We try to make the best of things and say, well, this good could come out of it, so I'm, okay. I'm, I'm going to allow that. But to just say, you know, this has happened and it's a great evil. But God is able to redeem it for good. Job 34, verse 31. For has anyone said to God, I have borne chastening. I will offend no more. Teach me what I do not see. If I have done iniquity, I will do no more. Should he repay it according to your terms just because you disavow it? You must choose and not I. Therefore, speak what you know. Men of understanding say to me, wise men who listen to me. Job speaks without knowledge. His words are without wisdom. Oh, that Job were tried to the utmost because his answers are like those of wicked men. For he adds rebellion to his sin. He claps his hand among us and multiplies his words against God. Elihu is right to say that God does not deal with or judge us according to our demands, right? That would be an a very strange thing. It'd be very ironic, right? For the one ignorant of his sin has in himself the awareness and self-control to not repeat it in the future. That just does not logically stack up at all. And knowing that you've erred doesn't mean that you can make things right or do right next time around. How proud and presumptuous man is to dictate terms to the sovereign God who rules over all. He's like, just because you make a demand, it doesn't mean that God has to follow your uh, outline for how he should deal with you. Like he's God. Remember that. And after rehearsing what Job had said was unwise, Elihu says a very harsh thing. He says, I wish that Job were tried to the utmost as if he had not suffered enough already. Elihu recognized that there was still pride and resistance in the heart of Job, that he was not broken and contrite before the Lord. And he wanted him to be brought to that place. And maybe he thought these harsh words could do it. But they can't. See, only God does that. Only God can humble a man and a woman. And it's God who opens our eyes to see our pride and our need to repent. And despite his wisdom, Elihu, he doesn't know the heart of Job. He takes his statements to an extreme and he lumps him in with the wicked, similarly to how his friends had already done. God's assessment of Job that he was blameless and upright. Elihu really takes the sides of his friends right now and speaks without knowledge or wisdom. He accuses him. The one blind to their own sin, the one that stubbornly clings to pride. They are able to have their eyes opened by Jesus who was tried to the utmost and proved righteous. And he overcame. And he's risen. We, we sung of that open tomb today. 
No one who saw Jesus crucified on Calvary saw anything good in the great evil that was done that day. That the son of God would come as a savior and he would be, they would slander him and they would murder him and they would torture him. Nothing good in that. Evil, pain. The pain inflicted by a human being upon another, that is a great evil. Yet God redeemed that for his purposes in the end. God knew what he would accomplish. He knew the souls he would redeem from death. Before Jesus was even dead and buried or risen, forgiveness and eternal salvation had been offered to the thief who hung beside him. Isn't that amazing? Can you imagine if that robber was executed on a different hill or a different hour or on a different day and he hadn't come face to face with Jesus? There would be, I mean, what, what good could come from that? All that he suffered. And we know that he was getting what he justly deserved as he hung there. Jesus didn't deserve that, but he gave himself so that we could be delivered from our sin, that we could know him, that we could walk with him, that God was able to ransom that pain and evil for good forever to save a soul. And if you could interview that man in light of eternity, in light of eternity with his savior, Jesus, he could say, greatest day of my life. Greatest day of my life. Because through that, I met my savior. I met my king. I met my God. So even in unthinkable evils, our great God, he's a redeemer for good. We can trust. Even when there's injustice, even when we can't explain it, or, or put a good spin on it. Know that God is good. Know that there is comfort, help, and hope in him now and forever. Let's pray. Thank you, God, that you are so good to us. That it's not a subjective term when we say you are good. You are absolutely good and perfect and upright and pure in every way. And you will never do evil. There is not one bit of unrighteousness or sinfulness in you. And so we exalt you, O Lord. You are worthy you are worthy to be praised and worshiped and obeyed. And may we do justly, Lord. May we know you and your ways and choose to walk in them because you are good. Because you have spoken and your word is true. That Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He was tried to the utmost. And Lord, how easily we are overwhelmed. How easily we're overwhelmed by pains and unknowns and confusion. And we suffer but Lord, you have redemptive purposes even in what we cannot imagine is good. Because it's not. It's evil, but yet you're good. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to align our perspective with yours. That we would look to you, trusting you. That you are a redeemer. That you have provided a ransom. That you are our hope and our king. Lord, we love you, and I thank you for your people here today. I thank you for those who are watching online, and I pray that you would minister your truth to our hearts, that we wouldn't taste your words and try to salt them with our own ideas, but we would hear your voice, and we would submit and surrender to you because you are holy. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.